I guess we'll get going. Uh, I appreciate y'all being here. My name's Eric Gentry, and I'm thankful to have y'all here. Uh, a lot of these folks in here. Tyler Godot. Hey, buddy. I haven't seen you in so long. And it's, I just feel like all my best friends came to hear me, so I appreciate that. And um, I don't have anything to teach y'all. Knowing, knowing, knowing you as well as I do, I know that I don't have much to teach y'all, but I'm thankful that you would come. I've also got some pe- folks in here I don't know, and I appreciate y'all making your way and being in here. I'm um, a minister, associate preaching minister at Highland Church in Memphis, Tennessee. work with Chris Altrock. He's right there in the blue shirt, and we share the pulpit there and work together. And uh, it's an awesome church, and I'm thankful they let me come out here. Let me bring my wife, Lindsay, who's right over there with our unborn child. So it's number two and a half right there cooking, and um, we'll see that baby here in August. We're excited about that. But I appreciate you coming, and we're going to think about preaching some today, but I'm going to try to use that word a little bit more expansively than strictly what happens behind a pulpit and think really about what the congregation's up to as a whole. So... In addition to what maybe the minister or preaching minister is doing, think about also what the congregation's doing in the world and in its own midst. And so we'll think some about that. But to start, I want to introduce you to a uh, hero of mine, a guy named Oscar Romero. So most of y'all are probably familiar with Oscar Romero. This is a short video about him. So El Salvador in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s, well, in some ways still today in some places, was a really brutal place. And in large part, there's movies about Oscar Romero. You've probably seen him, you've probably read some of his books. But in large part, um, the rich elites in El Salvador subjugated the poor peasants um, in terrible ways. And so vast income inequality, the term disappearing, when you disappear someone, to use disappear as a verb, kind of originates in El Salvador in this time when people would just disappear. The government would just take care of problem people. And Oscar Ramirez was the Catholic bishop who was sent to work in El Salvador, and he originally is not really a fan of what we now call liberation theology, which is, was also emerging from this context. But uh, one of his priests, who serves under him as bishop, is killed along with two peasants, and it really forms this radical transformation in him, and so he begins this campaign of witnessing and preaching, including from the pulpit, he would have these um, large mass What's the plural for mass, like the Catholic mass? Is it masses? I'm not sure about that. There you go. Look at that. Glad that you're in here. And, um, yeah, there you go. Really? Is that right? Yeah, it was like two people. Is that right? I'm very excited that you're going to show Oh, man. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure at all. Wow. We should just stop and listen to her there for the rest of the class. That sounds great. So, so anyways, um, so he would have, uh, in, in his, you know, thousands would come to hear Mass from him. And his sermons were broadcast over the radio. And so people all over El Salvador were listening. He would use his sermons to speak against the um, injustices going on in El Salvador. And this is a little video about him and, and what happens to him. And then we'll, we'll come back to him at the end of class. Ooh, let's go back, sorry. Archbishop Romero began to speak out 
If they have killed him for doing what he did, then I too have to walk the same path. Each week, after many hours of research, consultation and prayer, Romero used his lengthy Sunday homilies as a platform. He condemned the repression and would name an account for every man, woman and child who had been targeted and killed or disappeared. He used his sermons to challenge those in power. It is not God's will for some to have everything and others to have nothing. In a time of heavy press censorship, his sermons broadcast nationwide over the radio were the only way that people could hear the truth about the atrocities happening in their country. It was a dangerous path. Receiving death threats, Romero knew that one day soon he could be killed. Still, he remained utterly committed to carrying out his mission. Days before his assassination, he said, As a Christian, I do not believe in death without resurrection. If they kill me, I will rise again in the people of El Salvador. A bishop may die, but the Church of God, which is the people, will never die. On the eve of his assassination, he urged soldiers and police not to follow orders to kill. The peasants you kill are your own brothers and sisters. When a man tells you to kill, remember God's words, thou shalt not kill. In the name of God and in the name of this suffering people, I beg you, I beseech you, I order you in the name of God, stop the repression. At 6.26 p.m. on 24th March 1980, while celebrating Mass, Archbishop Romero was shot dead at the altar in the chapel of the cancer hospital where he lived. Oscar Romero gave his life to speak out on behalf of the poor and oppressed in his country. Romero's example remains an inspiration to millions across the globe who work for justice, reconciliation and peace. Somebody wants to hit the lights, that'd be great. Okay, so I'm going to come back to Oscar Romero. Let me just say he's a hero of mine. I want to, I want to, to use what he did and preached and his uh, models, kind of something to think about later on in the, in the class. We want to start with that today. So one of the things that I, I've been thinking a lot about in ministry lately, and perhaps it's because I've been reading about Oscar Romero, I'm like looking at my own very comfortable ministry by comparison and thinking like, oh, what am I doing, right? You know, like I need to go to El Salvador. And um, so I've been thinking about this question, what makes a good minister? What makes a good minister? And I, come, I came across this passage not long ago, and I've been dwelling on it for a long time. And so it's kind of what gives rise to this class today. So this, this is 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 2. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you followed. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister. And so that reminds me of um, Screwtape Letters. How many of y'all have read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Yeah, like nearly everybody in here has read Screwtape Letters. And it's this fictitious correspondence between two demons, um, Screwtape and Wormwood. And essentially, to, you know, the, uh, the protege Wormwood is attempting to manipulate this young man into you know, not following Jesus. And Screwtape's giving him advice on how to do that. And it is this, this, this world that C.S. Lewis imagines that's so enchanted and mysterious. This world we, we can't see, but these spirits that are alive and active and trying to get people to do bad things. And that's what this passage reminds me of. If you point out these things that are being taught by the deceiving spirits and the demons, I think about screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis. But often this perspective of good ministry back here where you point these things out, um, these teachings that come through hypocritical liars, that we think about you know, what good ministry means here is kind of this dogmatic approach to ministry, that what my job is is to point out everything that's wrong. You know, like, I'm kind of the person who defends the truth. I'm the person who points out the wrong things. 
and there's probably an element of that, but um, that kind of tendency or that sole focus of ministry of pointing out the wrong things really, in my mind, overlooks the spiritual perceptivity that's required to be a person who points out those wrong things. So I'm, pay, I'm paying attention to these you know, demons, right? these spirits that are unseen, that are much larger than just your conduct in any one moment or, some, or something that somebody chooses to do. I'm going to pay attention to these spiritual dynamics that are unseen by many, and that's what gives me the authority to speak as a good minister, right? Because I'm paying attention the spiritual dynamics that we'll call the powers and authorities in a few minutes. Um, let me stop there. Uh, no, I'm going to keep going, then I'll stop for questions there. Uh, but I think that's what's going on here in First Timothy. That's something of what's being said. It's not just defending the truth, okay, but a spiritual perceptivity and attentiveness that qualifies you to do that and makes you a good minister. So when we talk about the powers or the things that demons are teaching the things, these deceptive spirits, what are we talking about? Well, one way to enter that conversation is to think about atonement. So this is a passage in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. It's from Paul. And we have two atonement theories that show up in this one passage. And, you know, if, if you know um, Paul, you know that he certainly was not kind of beholden to any one atonement theory. Those are all applied much later to Paul and other people, and so he's going to drift in between these two theories. One's substitution, and the other's Christus Victor. So we'll start at the beginning there, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So that's the that's like classic substitutionary atonement. So we have a debt we cannot pay. Christ pays it for us on the cross. He, he substitutes himself for us. Substitution. That's how we're, atonement's how we're made righteous in God's eyes. And then, but he bleeds into this other idea in verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, so we're still talking about at the cross, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross, triumphing over them by the cross. Uh, so this passage begins with the idea of substitution, and it bleeds into this idea of Christ, the victorious. So this is you know one of those places we get that idea of Christ being the victor over something. And here it's called the powers and authorities, and the moment of Christ's victory is at the cross. What's he talking about? Uh, did anybody have to read Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology in school? Anybody else have to read that? Oh, you're so fortunate that you didn't have to read it. We had to do um, summer reading. Uh, the first year we did summer reading was seventh grade, and we got assigned homework over the summer, which to me is like, you know, a fallacy that you can have homework over the summer. Like, that shouldn't be allowed. And the first thing we had to read was Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology. It's this big, thick book. And I don't remember anything from Edith Hamilton's Greek mythology except how Hercules dies. Okay, you remember Hercules? In the Greek mythology, is actually Heracles. In the Roman, he's Hercules, but we'll say Hercules for, you know, because that's how we know him. So Hercules uh, is a big macho dude, and um, he has a wife. I can't remember her name. What is her name? Does anybody remember Hercules' name? Okay. Yeah, I can't remember his name, her name, and I don't have it here in my notes. So the story goes that Hercules and his wife are, uh, he's half God, half human, Hercules is, and he and his wife are going to cross this river. And so Hercules just takes off because he's Hercules, and he swims across the river. It's no big deal because he's, he's like the strongest man who's ever lived, right? But his wife can't swim, so he's, he's really strong and a great swimmer, but he's a bad husband, so he just leaves her on the other side. And the centaur comes along, and you know, remember a centaur, they've got horns and a human body, but horse legs. And the centaur comes along, and the centaur's like, I'll take you to the other side. And the punchline is, you never trust a centaur, right? And everybody knows that. Okay, I didn't know that. I got that wrong on the test when I got back from summer school. Okay, But anyways, you're never supposed to trust a centaur. So the centaur steals Hercules' wife. And so Hercules, seeing this happen from the other side of the river, shoots an arrow and it kills the centaur. It strikes the centaur and the centaur falls over dying. And the centaur's name is Nessus. Nessus is the centaur's name. And so as Nessus lays dying, he takes off his shirt that's now covered in blood and also poison. The arrow was poison. So this poison that's killing Nessus is now covering the shirt. And Nessus takes off the shirt, and he gives it to Hercules' wife. 
and he tells her, you should give this shirt to Hercules as a gift. And so she hasn't learned her lesson about not trusting a scimitar. So she goes, and she gives that shirt, the Nessus robe is what it's called. She gives it to Hercules, and that's what's in this picture here. And there's the scimitar that he's slaying down there in the bottom. And she puts the robe on Hercules, and it begins to eat him alive. Because right? it's got this poison all over the robe. And he can't get the robe off, so he's struggling, he's struggling with the robe, and he just can't get the robe off. And finally, it, it does him in. Okay, it's called the, the Nessus robe. It's a, it has its own Wikipedia page. It's a real popular literary device. If you ever want to look it up and use it in one of your sermons, you can. The Nessus robe. It's, a, it's this garment that's wrapped around you, suffocating you, and despite how hard you struggle against it, you cannot get it, el- get it off yourself. So I think that's a really helpful image for the situation we find ourselves in situation that the New Testament's describing that we're in, because the, the New Testament claims that all of humanity, all of us, are in the grip of forces beyond our control. Okay? Powers that are unseen, but that have a grip on us that we just cannot shake. Leslie Newbingen, he's a famous missionary, a lot of you have probably read Leslie Newbingen, he says that um, we tend not to think of the powers that bind us, he says, but they are on almost every page of the New Testament. The principalities, powers, authorities, rulers, and spiritual forces. Paul says, you probably remember this verse, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That these powers that we can't see, they envelop us like a robe, they tear at our flesh without us even knowing they're there. Um, so the most important theologian in my life recently is a guy named Walter Wink. And have any of you read Walter Wink before? Yeah, absolutely. And so he's he's probably third most important in my life behind Jesus and my dad, and we got Walter Wink. He's probably beating Paul right now. Uh, so Walter Wink wrote this really important series called the Powers Trilogy, uh, naming the powers, unmasking the powers, and engaging the powers. If you, he, he wrote several other books about principalities and powers, but if you want to get the meat of it, it's in those three books. And what he does in those three books is the first book, Naming the Powers, is a word study on all the Greek terms that we would translate as powers, authorities, rulers, principalities, all those terms, okay? And um, it's the most exhaustive study of those terms that's probably ever been done, and it's really widely respected. And what he says is, you know, he comes to the end of that study, and he says this about the powers. The powers are not only divine, but human. They're not only personified, but structural. I'm going to try to make this, uh, make a little more sense of this. Not only demons and kings, but the world atmosphere. And the power invested in institutions and laws and traditions and rituals as well. For it is the cumulative, totalizing effect of all these taken together that creates the sense of bondage to a dominion of darkness, Colossians 1, presided over by higher powers. Okay. Um, that's really complicated. And I'm going to try to make sense of what he, you know, takes three books to explain. So I'm probably not going to do a good job of it. But he's saying that the powers that Paul's talking about, for instance, in Ephesians, we can see, and there's a dimension of them that's unseen. So how is that possible? How is there something that's both unseen and something you can observe? So let me give you the classic example that he gives. Okay, yeah, start, okay. I'm trying to think through my time here. I started three minutes in there. Let me give the classic example that he gives. So um, oh, I think I have a picture of this. Yeah, I do. Uh, the Simpsons. He doesn't give The Simpsons as an example. I think he was writing before The Simpsons. But Walter Wink uh, talked about mob mentality. So you get a bunch of people together, and um, suddenly they're willing to do things they would not do otherwise. Right? So if, if you were walking down Beale Street, it's a really popular street in Memphis, kind of famous street, and with like bars and drinking and stuff. So I, I'm never there on Beale Street. I've never been there before, but I've heard it's a really great place to visit. And so let's imagine you were walking down Beale Street and somebody handed you, you know, like a, um, a brick and said, you know, throw this brick through this storefront window on Beale Street. You'd be like, that's crazy. I'm not going to do that, right? But if you were surrounded by 3,000 other people who were really mad about something and everybody's throwing bricks, suddenly you're just like, yeah, I'm going to throw this brick, right? You know, the this, this spirit just takes you over. 
And the thing is, you can't see mob mentality, but you can see it play out, right? You can see its effects. You know, mob mentality is such a, like a, a, an observable phenomenon that social scientists write papers on the mob mentality, right? You know, it's like secular people are observing. There's some kind of spirit at work here among these people. Or you think about peer pressure. You know, you've got this young girl who's at a party. Everybody's, you know, doing some drug or something like that. And she is a good little girl, and she would never do anything like that. But all of a sudden, she's at this party. All her friends are around her, you know, this room's full of people who are doing it. And suddenly, we're just going to watch her do this thing she would never do otherwise. We call that, what, peer pressure. So we, we have a term for this thing you can't see. Like, you can't see, if you imagine that screw tape letters figure, you can't see this demon tapping on her shoulder saying, honey, this is going to be the best thing you've ever done. Right? You can't see that happening. And yet, you can witness this phenomenon taking place. This spirit has taken her over. She's going to do something she wouldn't do otherwise. And, and the, the secular social scientists would call it peer pressure. So that's what she's given to. Uh, or let me give you another example that's... Um, less theoretical and more real, okay? So we're talking about powers that have an impact on the world that you can't see in, in, you know, in reality, but maybe you can see in practice, you can see them play out. So uh, I think I got a picture of this one too. So recently Michigan State University has been in the news because of Larry Nasser, the one-time doctor who worked at Michigan State University treating athletes, primarily gymnasts, but others as well. And over the course of several decades, Larry Nasser abused countless young girls, right, predominantly young girls, through the guise of medical treatment. And it's this, this terrible sexual crime, maybe one of the, the, in terms of volume, the greatest sexual offenders of all time. Greatest is like a terrible adjective to either the worst, right? Okay. In terms of volume, so significant. And so I was reading this article about it, and one of the lawyers who first accused him, Larry Nasser, made this statement that just jumped out at me while I was reading it. She said, many of the victims wouldn't be here in this courtroom. This was at the sentencing phase of the courtroom where they brought in many of the victims who got to speak. Some of you probably saw footage of this because really famous gymnasts came in and were um, uh, I, you know, talking to Nasser there at the trial. And so she said, many uh, of, of these victims would not be here if the adults and authorities would have done what they should have done 20 years ago. So people knew about it and nobody did anything. People looked the other way is what she's saying. But then now, she and others like her were turning their attention, and this is the quote, with even greater force to the institutional dynamics that led to the greatest sexual assault scandal in history. The institutional dynamics. And it was when I read that word institutional dynamics that my breath was almost taken away. When I when I when you think about dynamics, you think about like an atom, and like A T O M, you know, an atom has all these small particles, and they're flying around in that atom, they're bouncing off of each other, and we call that dynamics, right? It's the energy that exists between those smallest particles and an atom, and and she's like she's putting her finger on something here that she, you know, she in many ways knows about Larry Nasser and the details of this trial better than anybody perhaps. But what she might not know is that she's identifying a phenomenon that the Bible talked about 2,000 years ago, right? She's talking about this energy, this force that exists between people within institutions that causes good people to look the other way, right, and allow a bad person to do a bad thing, right? This force that existed within that university where people were just drawn to do nothing, right? This energy, this institutional dynamics. That's what she calls it. Paul would probably call it the principalities and powers, Okay, let me stop there. Does anybody have a question about that? What I'm trying to communicate? I'm going to try to make a little more sense of it. But any questions so far? Okay. So, um, the reality is you, you do believe this at some level. Um, because you, you know, have read your stories about the Virgin Mary getting visited by an angel. You know, you've read the New Testament about the demon-possessed men, right, that Jesus comes across. And so you, you have, at some level, a commitment to the idea of unseen forces in operation in the world. Uh, Richard Beck's written a lot about this. He's probably here this week. You've probably read a lot of Richard Beck. And he calls this the difference between an, an enchanted worldview and a disenchanted worldview. 
And so in an enchanted worldview, um, you know, you, you tend to think in, in New Testament terms. You know, you think about these unseen dynamics in the world. Um, he gives this example, you know, so you've got these crab fishermen who are up in the northeast coast, and the crab fishing population's down, and they say, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you've got these scientists that say the crab fishing's down because the water temperatures have changed because of global warming, right? And so they can explain it, right? And it's the difference between an enchanted and a disenchanted worldview. Okay, in a disenchanted worldview, you, you kind of, you deal with the reality you can see, and there, there's no other phenomenon going on. There's no other influences that are leveraging power over people. There's just what you can see. Each person kind of logical, and they have the ability to make their own rational decision, and they would never be influenced by anything outside their immediate control, right? Except for that girl at the party. So for those people in that mob mentality. Except for all these good people at Michigan State University who some, for some reason, look the other way. So, so apparently there are these greater dynamics going on, and these are the ones that Paul labels the powers and authorities. And what Scripture tells us is that these things didn't pop out of nowhere, the principalities and powers, that Jesus made them. We see this in Colossians 1. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The story of the powers is much like the story of humanity, that those powers rebel. And then Jesus says he saw Satan thrown like lightning from heaven, right? So those powers rebel from God, and now you have those same powers created by God to do God's purposes on the world, in the world, resisting the will of God, right? David Foster Wallace, uh, kind of a legendary author. Some of y'all probably read David Foster Wallace. Uh, not a Christian, but he said that we are driven by our... our um, oh, let me say something before David Foster Wallace that I missed, actually. So if you, if, you, if you, you know, kind of are committed to Colossians 1, what you believe is that these powers are created by God, but that those powers rebelled, then what, you, what you're acknowledging is that these things are created for good, those powers, and they're, they're turned on themselves, or they're turned against God. And one of the classic examples that uh, Wink gives, and we might think about, is that what sin is, is the power of freedom that God endows on the world. You know, we would all say you have free will, right? Most of us in here. God endows the world with free will, and what that's a power that God gives to the world that all of us are, you know, it's it's wrapped around us right now while experiencing the power of freedom in this room. But what sin is, is the power of freedom taken to its logical extreme. You know, we exercise our freedom that God has given us to to dive, you know, run from God. So sin is the power of freedom, the good power of freedom turned in on itself, and it consumes you, that's what he'd say. So David Foster Wallace, he's, he's this legendary author, maybe you have read him, he's non-Christian. He said that we're driven by our freedom, which is God-given, to worship all kinds of things, money, beauty, power, intellect, he said. But all that worship, all that sin, as we would call it here in this room, not only makes us fragile and, and exhausted, he said, it will eat you alive. Those are his words, it will eat you alive which reminds me of the Hercules Nessus robe, this garment that's wrapped around you that you can't see, that it's just suffocating the life out of you, and you're trying to get it off as hard as you can, and you can't do that. So sin, in this, in this context, when we're thinking about the atonement of Jesus, is the chief power in the world, and it's wrapped around us like a poison shirt. You know, it's tricking us by our freedom into worshiping what's not God, and all the while we're dying. Sin's taking us where we don't want to go. It's taking us towards death. Okay, so that's one of the ways to picture... Let's see. Oh, yeah. Stranger Things. That's one of the ways to picture what's happening in the Gospels is a conflict between Jesus and the powers, the principalities and powers. And so um, you might think about Jesus' whole life as a conflict against the powers. So who is it? throughout the Gospels that knows who Jesus is from the beginning, from the get-go. Demons, right? The demons know who he is. So even the disciples who are following him, like, bumble along and stumble trying to figure out who this guy is. But the demons know who he is from the get-go. And so you can think about Jesus' life as this attempt by the powers, these suffocating shirts that we're all experiencing or wearing, those shirts, those powers, trying to tighten their grip on Jesus throughout his life. And so you think about Pilate, you know, who's willing to crucify this man who he, he believes is innocent, right? 
So why is he willing to do that? Think institutional dynamics. Right, institutional dynamics. You got everybody else telling him to do it. You got this mob that's shouting, crucify him. Right? I mean, just a week before, they were singing Hosanna in the highest, right, as he rode in on the donkey. Okay, how are they willing to go from Hosanna in the highest to crucify him? Think mob mentality, right? Everybody's saying this. The Spirit's taking up. So you can see, if you, if you witness the life of Jesus through the lens of the New Testament, which is this spiritual conflict being waged in Jerusalem, right? What you see there in Jesus' last moments, and really through his whole life, is the powers trying their best to close their grip down on Jesus, and at the cross, finally snuffing the life out of him, right? Thinking they've won, which getting tired and tired and tired and tired until they think they've won. Uh, but like our passage here says that we started with, it's at the cross, you know, at the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So, you know, the powers are suffocating the life out of him, they think they've got him, and then something happens, right, when they suffocate the life out of him. So to introduce you to that, let me show you this clip from Stranger Things. If somebody could hit that light right, right behind you, that'd be good, because this is, this is a really brief clip. Um, so has anybody watched Stranger Things, the Netflix series? All right. Okay, yeah. All right. So we got a couple in here that have watched Stranger Things. So Stranger Things, have you watched Stranger Things? Okay, all right. Um, Stranger Things is about this, like, 1980s American town, Hawkins, Indiana. And um, in Hawkins, Indiana, you know, things are going fine until this little boy disappears. And this girl disappears, and all kinds of bad things start happening. And, and basically, what is revealed is that there's this other world that's, that's wrapped around the little town of Hawkins, Indiana. And it's reaching into that little town, and it's grabbing people, it's doing things in that little town, and then it's disappearing back into this unseen dimension. And this little boy, Will, is, is one of the few that can kind of see that other world all around Hawkins, Indiana, that nobody else can see. And so he walks out of the, the arcade at one moment. He's playing in the arcade with his friends. And here's this, you know, kind of classic 1980s arcade in Hawkins, Indiana. And he's looking out at this arcade. And one minute he just sees the, the dark night sky that everybody else sees. And the next he sees something else. Okay, you see that right there? It's kind of hard to see in this, uh, I guess because the light's there, but you've got this like giant spidery looking figure that's hanging over the town of Hawkins, Indiana. That's super creepy, right? And also awesome. You need to watch Stranger Things. I, I convinced my wife to watch it because I was like, this is all about the gospel, baby. You know, Stranger Things, this is about the gospel, right? You know, this is why we need to watch this. This is powers and authorities. Yeah, so that's a really good visual for how Christians have thought about what Jesus is up to. Um, on the cross at the moment he breathes his last because it's right then that Jesus goes into that other realm, the realm of death, the realm of the powers and authorities, the realm that often reaches into this life and does its dirty work. You know, it's, it's at that moment that Jesus enters that realm and where the dead are enslaved and busts them out. Uh, so this is, I love this picture. This is from a, a fresco in a church in Istanbul. It's a little bit difficult to see here. Let me try to make some sense of it. <clears throat> this is the moment Jesus dies. And at the moment Jesus dies, he, he enters the, this domain of the powers, the domain of death, right? And we have a couple of challenging passages in 1 Peter. You know, in Catholic tradition, they would call this the harrowing of hell. And those passages are really difficult to come up with a whole kind of timeline for what Jesus was up to for three days while he was in the tomb. Um, but... Uh, needless to say, I still love this picture, right? Because I think whether or not you, you think in some kind of practical sense Jesus went down into some realm of death or up into some realm of death, I think uh, symbolically that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So in this picture, Jesus is busting through the gates of hell, and you see the two gates right here. There's these golden doors right here. It's kind of hard to see the colors a little washed out on the screen. But Jesus is busting through the gates of hell, and he is busting everybody out. So does anybody know who these two people are? It's Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve. So the, the, the first allegedly to go down into, the, uh, into hell, although I, I don't know if you would say Abel was the first, I'm not sure. But you've got, he, he's busting out Adam and Eve, and these are different patriarchs surrounding Adam and Eve, and he's going to bust them out too. So at the moment of Jesus' death, this is what we mean by he's disarming the powers and authorities. Those powers, the great weapon they have is the weapon of death. 
you know, that's the ultimate weapon of the powers of evil in this world. You know, that's rife in the New Testament, sin and death, sin and death, right? So the great power those things have over us is death, and what Jesus does at the moment of his death is enter that domain that we see in Stranger Things where the giant spider figures hang, hang over town and disarm those powers, okay? He, he starts busting all of his people out. So, like, pastorally, if I was, you know, preaching this sermon pastorally or preaching this message pastorally, what I would say is that, you know, although, um, you know, I think Jesus at this point is beyond the bounds of space and time, you know, as we kind of see at the end of the Gospels because he's showing up in one place and in another place, he's not kind of bound by the normal rules of time. So I, I'm not saying, like, practically he's, he's standing here right now because we know he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. But I, but I would say, in essence, where Jesus is still standing is at the gates of hell. And when you die, right, and enter that domain that right now we can only see in part or only imagine, but we see fully once we die, Jesus stands there at those gates and say, oh, no, you belong to me. Come this way. Like, those gates no longer have power. And that's what we mean by the disarming of death, because all of us are still going to die. Right? That's, the, that's like the great paradox of being a preacher and getting up there and talking about how we've been freed from death, because then the next week you're going to do somebody's funeral. Right? You know, everybody's still dying. And so what we must be talking about is a freedom from death in a dimension that we cannot totally see in this world. So Jesus is still standing there practically, or in essence, pulling away those people who belong to him, who, who are his. And also we might think about um, Jesus allowing, at the moment of his death, the powers of evil to suffocate the life out of him. But then once he enters that realm of death, the realm of stranger things, that garment is torn away from him. I might imagine Hercules again with that suffocating garment. That garment is torn off of him. And that's why Jesus, the power of death holds no power over Jesus any longer. He returns. But also what's going on with you and me, I think, when the New Testament talks about circumcision, what it's largely talking about is a circumcision of the flesh. Okay, so that same garment being torn away from us. We see this in Colossians 2. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh, or your whole self ruled by the flesh, was put off and you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So, you know, in the Christus Victor atonement theory, the way that God saves us is he comes in and he beats those powers that are wrapped around us. He takes scissors and cuts them off of us. That's the image. It's not that those powers don't exist anymore. Like Ephesians says, he now holds them pinned under his feet. He rips them off of you, throws them under his feet, and he's standing there with those powers of death under his feet. That's kind of complicated. I'm going to try to make, make it a little more plain here in a moment. Questions so far? Before we talk about <laughs> iPhones and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> okay, let me give you another term that Wink uses and it might help as we transition here to think about some practical examples of the powers in this world what he uses this term called um, the interiority of an institution a group of people so if you were going to describe the interiority of a mob throwing bricks through windows, you would describe that interiority as violent, hostile, unthinking. You would start describing it with these adjectives, and it would sound like you're describing a person. Right? And if you were, uh, I think one, one thing to think about is, does a church have an interiority? Does it have a spirit? And uh, I, I like to think that it does. You know, John the Revelator thinks that we do. He calls it the angel of the churches. So he writes the seven letters not to the churches themselves, but to the angel of the churches. It's a, it's a, uh, you know, it's I, what I think is going on there is this idea that churches have a spirit. That just like there is a spirit that shows up when a mob of people get together to do bad things, there hopefully is a spirit that shows up when we all gather together as the body of Christ. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also, right? So we hope that 
Like, we're not just showing up and patting each other on the back. We hope that God's doing something at that moment. Like, that there's a spirit about us. If you were going to describe the spirit of your church, you might say it's friendly, it's kind, it cares about justice, it cares about the word. Right? It sounds like you're describing a person. Okay. So what Wing says is that all institutions, all groups, all people, okay, as they come together, are, are shaped by an interiority. There's a spirit within them. Okay. And this is what he calls the principalities and powers. And he says the New Testament is making that point. And so that's how it, it can seem Paul, he talks about powers of darkness at one, at one moment in Ephesians 6. And then he talks about the rulers and authorities in the next. And it sounds like he's, at one point he's talking about something spiritual. And at one point he's talking about something human. You know, a king. Okay? A government. The Roman government. Uh, and then at this point it seems like he's talking about spirit. And what he's saying is that all governments, all nations... All groups, all churches have these spirits about them that both have an unseen dimension and a seen dimension. They have an interiority that animates them, that drives them. It's just like you and me have a soul okay, that drives us. So let me talk about how, how does this story or this, this uh, idea help us think through popular events that are going on in our world today? How might we think through some of those? Let me, let me point out some. So... Um, Wells Fargo has been in the news a lot lately, not for good reason, which stinks because I have my mortgage with Wells Fargo. But uh, Wells Fargo created uh, a ton of fraudulent accounts. It's a practice that's called cross-selling, which is where you, you have uh, existing customers and you sell to them without them knowing policies or accounts they don't actually need to make your investors, to make it look like to your investors you're a bigger company than you are, right? And it's called cross-selling. And basically, so they, they stole a lot from a lot of people, right? And here's, here's what you got to, to figure. The people who are doing this cross-selling are not the, the CEO of Wells Fargo. He's not the one doing it, right? It's, it's the lowest people on the totem pole, right? It's the, it's the people at the teller's counter. It's the people at the, the, you know, the little personal agents that you can talk to down there who are feeling this pressure from above them to do something that is unethical. And I would bet that most of those people, if they were walking across the street and a little old lady dropped $10, they would pick it up and they would give it to that little old lady. Right? But suddenly, when they're part of this corporate structure with this power of greed at this point, is how we would describe that power, is operating, they're willing to do something they wouldn't do otherwise. They're willing to steal from a little old lady. Right? Or Apple. This is in December of 2017. We've all known this for so long. Right, that Apple would slow down your old phone so that you would have to buy a new phone. And we all talked about this together, like, oh, Apple's definitely doing this. And Apple never admitted it until December of 2017 when it came out that every time you update your old phone, you're slowing down your, your phone. Right? And they're, they're intentionally putting into the software that you're updating to uh, devices that will slow down your phone. And they said it's for your battery life. Right? Right. So why are they doing that? Okay, well, well, who did it? Think about that. Well, it wasn't, you know, like Steve Jobs when he was still alive that's probably making that decision, right? We're doing it. It's these low-level programmers who are designing this software that are doing it. And why are they doing it? Well, because they're feeling this pressure from on high, this spirit in the institution that's telling them to do that, you know? Uh, or think about this. You know, right now we're in the midst of, we're not far from here right now from Hollywood. And um, we're in the midst of the Me Too movement, which is a large movement about sexual harassment against women. And so this all originates from Harvey Weinstein, who's a producer, Hollywood producer, who over 100 women have now come forward and accused him of sexual misconduct. And what's really distressing about the story is that it's, um, or what magnifies the distress, is by the many who knew about what he was doing and did nothing. Right? So you've got, uh, let's see, George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino, Brad Pitt, Seth MacFarlane, Seth Rogen, Matt Damon, Howard Stern, right? And I'm not saying those guys are like the cream of the crop, Right or like awesome Jesus followers. I don't know that about any of them. I haven't followed any of them closely enough to know that. But Tarantino said, he said, I knew enough to do more than I did. There was more to it than just the normal rumors, the normal gossip. It wasn't secondhand. I knew he did a couple of these things, and we allowed it to exist because that's the way it was. The way it was. Just the way. That's what everybody does. Right? Okay, where does the way come from? How does that just materialize if there's not some spirit or force producing that way, desiring that way in the world. Uh, Richard Beck wrote this about 
politics, and he said, he pointed out that this power of womanizing that we see in the Me Too movement with Weinstein is also present in politics. For instance, in you know, Donald Trump's election. So shortly before the election, information comes out about his um, bragging about an alleged sexual assault. And still, 81% of evangelical voters voted for Donald Trump. And I'm not going to get into politics here, but he says this. Beck says, the game of Caesar is a game of power, and winning is the name of that game. So when morality gets in the way for both conservatives and liberals, power has to take precedence. So he's like, he's like naming the interiority of American politics. Well, you know, that interiority, what it desires is power. There's a spirit that desires power above all else. So it's willing to trample over other good things, good people. So it wants power. And that's why, like, all those, you know, evangelical voters are, you know, people that I worship with and, and sing along with on Sunday morning. So I don't think they're bad people, but, you know, you can be inspired to do something by forces that you don't even know are there. Right? This is one, Leslie Newbingen gives this example, and I think this is really true in churches, the power of numbering. Uh, he says, uh, number is one of those stoicheia, rulers and authorities, that's the Greek term which is fascinating thinkers of various schools. Numbering enables us to measure and quantify. It's an element of order in the universe, but it can become a tyrant when, as in modern reductionist thinking, it is absolutized and nothing is valued except what can be measured and quantified. I mean, how, you know, how many of you, the first thing you look at on Monday morning was how many people were at church yesterday and how much did they give? Right? How close are we to budget? Right? It's, it's the power of numbering. Whereas you could measure things like their spiritual growth, which is much harder to measure, obviously, because you can't number it, saying that numbering is a power. You might be able to think of others out there. So what does it mean to preach to those powers? Um, that, can, that language comes from that passage we started with in 1 Timothy, that your job as a good minister is to make known uh, those lies of the demons and the powers. This is from Ephesians 3. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am blessed than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities, those powers that we've been describing, in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, let, me, let me think about two dimensions of powerful preaching. This is, this is how we'll end today, the two dimensions of powerful preaching. So first is, uh, or you might think two spheres of powerful preaching. One is in the congregation and the other is to the world, in the congregation, to the world. So as you think about the interiority of your church, you know, what powers might you say come to mind? What powers of darkness, the powers of this dark age, can we see reaching their poisonous grip into the church? So let me give you some possible examples to stir the pot. I mean, you can think about this on your own time. But let's think about, like, racism in the church. Like, it's, it's a power that no doubt exists in the world. you got to ask yourself, why does it still exist? You know, if, if all of us, like, good people were in here, we'd be like, oh, I'm not a racist, right? Um, but still those powers and structures exist in the world. Because somehow these powers exist in places that, that take you and me who are good people and trick us into doing bad things to certain groups of people. That exists in the church for sure. Affluence. Is really common in the church, busyness in the church, scarcity, the idea that we never have enough in the church. I think that's a power, you know, it's, a, it's this force, this market force that gets us to buy more and more stuff that convinces us, our members, that we don't have enough scarcity. So how do you point them out at church? Um, I think about this passage from 1 Corinthians 2.6, those powers at church, how do you point them out? We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I think there's a temptation, no, no matter your political ideology, your socioeconomic bent, to, to tend to spend our time vilifying the rulers of this age 
rather than paying attention to the wisdom of this age to which those rulers are beholden. Um, and uh, that, that's a little bit of a complex way to say that. But basically, um, you know, you think about, uh, like, well, I've talked about Donald Trump, so let me bring him back up again because he's a good example of this. Recently, I got a, a question from a guy who's putting together this periodical that he sends out about preaching in the era of Trump. And he said, do you ever use Trump's name in your sermon? And um, that's a great question. I'd, I'd be kind of interested to hear some of your feedback on that. And, um, but in, in my context, I, I don't, typically. I can't think of a time I've used Trump's name in my sermon. And I think part of that is that our congregation has like cue words that if you say those words, they immediately check out or become very suspicious of what you're saying. So if I were to say Donald Trump, there'd be a large part of my population that would be really upset no matter what I said following that. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I, it's, in, in my context, one of the fascinating things is it's, it's, it's the same with Martin Luther King Jr. That in, my, in Memphis, Tennessee, that particular term is a, is a cue word that sets some people off. Uh, I think there's other terms you can you can use or maybe not use that like really causes people to check out. I think the old adage about preaching um, is really true that it's one thing to get it said, it's another thing to get it heard. And um, I, I've just learned that there are some cue words that people really check out to. White privilege would be one of those words that a lot of our people would check out to. Patriotism would be one of those words. Idolatry would be one of those words that they have a hard time with. Some of those cue words. I think one of the things that we need to think about as, as preachers or people who are witnessing to the gospel is that we have this temptation to vilify the rulers of this age and not recognize that the only reason they are ruling is because there is a wisdom or a power or a spirit of this age that, that empowers them, you know, that allows somebody to rise to a prominent office, to allow, allow somebody to rise to a prominent place in public opinion. Like, you know, like... Um, Kanye West, he's in the news a lot right now for saying ridiculous things. Well, newsflash, he's been saying ridiculous things for like 15 years. You know, so there's no surprise, right, that he's saying ridiculous things. But for some reason, he's representing a spirit, you know, that people gravitate to him despite the ridiculous things he says. And so we want to get up there and like bash on Kanye West for saying terrible things about slavery in this case, right? We, we kind of fail to, to think like, no, he's representing something. You know, recently Kanye West said, well, in the essence of his quote was, you know, um, African Americans have been in slavery for 400 years, so I think it was a choice, right? Like, you know, they, they've chosen to be in that state. Well, there's certainly a large percentage of the population that is going to cheer that on, right? right? So there's a reason that somebody can rise to prominence, right, because of spirits out there and the atmosphere, the air we breathe. And we might vilify Kanye West instead of saying, like, how, how can he get away with saying that? What, what spirit is it that I'm, like, giving myself to that I don't even, like, think, wow, that's wrong? What is that? Um, so you might also think about how you use media to, um, to kind of drop people's guard and point out the powers in real life. This is a Diet Coke commercial that I saw watching a movie the other day, and I was like, oh, that's the principalities and powers. Oh, let's go back, sorry. Let me show this to you. Come on. There we go. Look, here's the thing about Diet Coke. It's delicious. It makes me feel good. Life is short. If you want to live in a yurt, yurt it up. If you want to run a marathon, I mean, that sounds super hard, but okay. I mean, just do you, whatever that is. And if you're in the mood for a Diet Coke, have a Diet Coke. Diet Coke, because I can. Yeah, I mean, can you see how, like, the, the greatest value here in our time is to, to do what you want to do, be who you are. Like, that's, that's the greatest value of our time, right? And that's a power. You know, there, there are organizations like Diet Coke that are riding the wave of benefit when people give themselves over to that power, right? You follow? Like there's market forces that benefit because people think 
Well, because I can. I'm going to drink a Diet Coke. Why would anybody drink Diet Coke because you can, right? Like, that's, uh, I'm so sorry to move on. Uh, so then let me point out this. So that's how we might think about preaching to the powers in church. You know, you, you avoid some few words and focus instead on the wisdom of the age rather than the rulers of the age. And you also try like a misdirection. You know, how do we, how do we see these things playing out in culture? And you use media and stuff like that. And I think that helps to lower people's defenses. And then also the question of how might the church preach to the powers of this world, because that's what Paul ultimately says our job is in Ephesians. And one of the things that's really fascinating is in Acts 13, at the moment that Saul kind of drops that name and and becomes called Paul, is the moment that he is witnessing to one of the principalities and powers, right? We have this story about Elymas in front of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and it's at that moment that Paul is witnessing about Jesus Christ to that group that his name changes, and we we know him as Paul. So I, I think there's some significance to the moment we step out and begin to engage those powers in the world. How might we do do that? I think churches might do that through a number of ways. You know, group mobilization. One of the classic examples of this is the civil rights movement, which is birthed out of churches. You know, uh, John Siegenthaler, who covered the civil rights movement, had this to say. He said, it was like being a war correspondent. It was clear that there was a war on. We journalists could see that the weapons of nonviolence were stronger than those of violence. Right? He's this, the secular news correspondent is witnessing the power of group mobilization. I wonder what it might look like if your church did some marches or joined in some kind of pub, public demonstrations. This is a Russ and Amy Terman. They're like the best people I know. And um, they, they just recently adopted Jaden, who's a little boy there in the middle. But Jaden uh, came to live with them two years before he was adopted. His mom was just a struggling mom that was connected to our church and came to live with them. And they worked for two years to try to finally adopt him. And I think... You know, the church has a lot to say about life and how we value life and particularly anti-abortion stuff. And that's certainly a power in the world, this power of choice. It's veiled under the power of choice, but, you know, it's certainly um, destroying a lot of lives. Well, they could go out and they could, you know, like um, vote for somebody who might, you know, enact policies against abortion. That may be great, but they've taken this step of, like, willful obedience despite what the world might be doing. So willful obedience to God rather than powers by adopting, right? Like by giving life to this this boy who might not have it otherwise. I think about this story, um, I'm running out of time, so three minutes here. Daniel 10, uh, one of my favorite stories, and I'll end with this story and then tie it back to Romero. Daniel's this prophet of God. Israel is in Babylonian captivity, and he's ready to go home. And so he starts praying to God about this. You remember what happens? He prays for three weeks. And he doesn't hear anything from God. And then, after three weeks, this angel shows up, okay? And he says, whoa, he's like, he's winded, this angel is, and he shows up, he's really tired. He's like, listen, man, I've been wrestling with the Prince of Persia for three weeks. And the Prince of Persia is a spiritual force. The Prince of Persia is a spiritual force. It's the angel of the nation of Persia, the interiority, the spirit animating it, the, the nation of Persia. And Persia doesn't want... Israel to go home, right? They've got this like workforce that's on hand. There's people they can abuse and manipulate. So it does not benefit the nation of Persia for, um, or yeah, Persia for Israel to go home. It just doesn't, right? And so um, he says, I kind of have been wrestling with this angel of Persia, but finally the archangel Michael came and he tagged in. It's a cage match up there in heaven. He came and he tagged in so I could come and deliver you this message that y'all are going to get to go home soon. But I'm going to have to go back and fight this prince of Persia. And then the prince of Greece is going to come, and I'm going to have to fight him too. So I need you to be praying for me because I'm going back into battle, right? So he goes back, and he has this fight. And what the, the idea there is that this nation has this spirit about it, right? And that spirit is what is actually keeping Israel in physical, practical bondage, this unseen spirit. It's not Cyrus, who's eventually going to let them go, right? It's not the government of Persia. It's the spirit of Persia that does not want Israel to leave. And so God has to intervene in the spiritual realm for them to be freed. And that happens because this Daniel, in this case, starts praying. That's how God starts the cage match that ultimately leads to their freedom. And I think about that in relation to America. And we recently did a, um, a sermon about immigration. And, and like if you look at the Bible, I, we can't debate that a lot here. But there's no doubt there's one group of people, well, several groups of people that God cares a lot about. Alien, the widow, and the stranger, right? The immigrant. And so we, we preached about immigration. You know, it's a dicey topic right, right now. We preached about that. But one of our guys at our church started a GoFundMe because you could 
pay, uh, I forget what it was at the time, maybe $7,000 to get an entire Syrian family to come over to America through World Relief. And he started a GoFundMe, and our young people at church and some older folks at our church gave generously to this thing. We raised $7,000 overnight to bring in this Syrian family that we're now walking alongside. And I think that's one of the examples of ways that people might preach to the powers that are outside, you know, this spirit of a nation that's hostile, that's closed off to outsiders right now. And one of the ways the church models a different attitude is not only by preaching at it, about it inside the church, but like giving generously to make it happen outside the church. And that's one of the ways that the powers will ultimately be defeated. So Oscar Romero is a hero of mine. And what I appreciate so much about Oscar Romero is his boldness and, and preaching okay, against those powers in El Salvador. But what you also must learn from his story is that as he dies, he's doing performing communion and mass. He's got the chalice over his head, and he, an assassin comes in and shoots him. Is that as the church preaches against the powers that be, those powers will resist. Right? They will resist. And so I just leave you with that uh, caution as you go from here. All right, thanks for being here. See you.